News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Hamilton, Ontario is where you will find Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and all the members of his cabinet today. They're discussing what they're going to focus on in the upcoming fall session. What do Canadians care about? What's on the Liberal government's list to deal with? Let's talk about that now. Joining us now is Turia Isri, who's a Global National reporter, talking about this today. Good morning. Good morning. So what do we know about what's on the agenda here? Well, we know that affordability and health care will be the main talking points. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Hamilton, as you said, and this morning he's meeting with the mayor. And he's here for a reason. This city is nicknamed Steel Town. There are, manu- there are a lot of manufacturing jobs here, and the government is really hoping that their message and their plan for how to strengthen the economy, especially at this time of rising inflation, will, will really resonate with people in this city and, and across the country. And this city is significant because it's traditionally an NDP stronghold, but the Liberals made gains in the last election, so they are hoping to drum up support here. Okay, and so would you say that economic issues remain kind of top of mind for this whole retreat? The economy, definitely, but health care, I mean, perhaps even more so, given the fact that we are expecting a deal between the federal government um, and the premiers uh, within weeks. Um, Yesterday, the health minister held a a press conference after last night's uh, meeting, and, and he said, once again, it's imminent, he's optimistic, we still don't have an exact date, um, so hope, hopefully we'll, we will get some more specifics on when that can come, especially at a time when the healthcare system is, is in crisis with surgery backlogs, long waits, um, burnout among healthcare workers. So it, it's really quite critical that we get more specifics on when this deal is, is coming. Right. And so you mentioned that it's in Hamilton. So uh, will cabinet ministers be out and about? Will there be announcements in Hamilton as well? Um, Justin Trudeau is meeting with the mayor this morning. He was at a uh, local restaurant yesterday. Um, so that is definitely the plan. They're sort of pounding the pavement in the city. As far as announcements go, that remains to be seen. Uh, yesterday was sort of more of a, a meet and greet. But today will be the big day. So we will wait and see what announcements come from this. Okay. And is this traditionally something that they do every year? Yeah, it's typically held a uh, twice a year, usually after a break. So given the fact that uh, the House adjourned for the winter holiday, they're holding this retreat to pretty much lay out their priorities before Parliament returns. Um, and it's also a bit of a blueprint for what we can expect in the next budget that will likely be in the spring. So it's kind of a government strategy session um, before the House resumes, which will be next week. Okay, and do we know what kind of issues when it comes to healthcare that they are focusing on? I know there's been a lot of pressure from the provinces, and then there's been discussion of perhaps provinces are going to be able to reach a deal with the federal government on healthcare. Has that been discussed at all? Yeah, so the health minister signaled that a deal is is imminent, so we should be seeing something um, in the next few weeks. We don't know exactly when. Um, There were some sticking points. The federal government wanted a more specifics from the provinces um, with regards to data and clearing surgery backlogs and just sort of measures of success. So how the federal government can see what the provinces are doing or or what progress they're making. So apparently some of those issues have been um, sorted out and the federal government is optimistic that the premiers will accept 
uh, a federal health funding deal, uh, but we don't know exactly when, and that's, that's the big question. All right. Well, Toria, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Toria Isri, Global National Reporter, talking about the retreat going on. Hamilton, Ontario is the scene of it. Prime Minister Trudeau and all the members of his cabinet there uh, kind of focusing on what they are going to focus on for the upcoming fall session. And obviously healthcare big issue, as Toria mentioned. And as well, we'll see more focus on the economy. So things will start to heat up in Ottawa. We'll start to get uh, more information about the plans that they have, hopefully, to help Canadians out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Living in a rural community has lots of positives, right? You got tons of space, it's more affordable, you're in a beautiful setting, so you got wonderful scenery. But on the negative side, not as much access to things like healthcare. Maybe there's no big hospital nearby. Maybe the family doctor retires and there's no one else. And that literally means there is no one else. And it's been an ongoing challenge to keep some of those community health centers or smaller hospitals even staffed in recent months. We've heard lots of stories about that. Well, now rural mayors have decided they need to band together to do something about this. So let's talk about that. Mike Getz is the mayor of Merritt and joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am and, uh... Good, thank you. How are things in Merritt, by the way? How goes the reconstruction? It's uh, it's slow. It's it's moving along now that DMF has been reopened again. We do have some light on t- at the end of the tunnel that we'll be able to get some funding, but we're moving along. People here are very resilient, and uh, if you walk down the streets now, him, Simi, you probably wouldn't even realize we had a flood just a little over a year ago. It's uh, uh, I'm very proud of this community and how they've banded together and and. Uh, didn't knuckle under and have worked hard to get back to a normal life. Oh, that is so good to hear because I know I'm distracted because I wanted to ask about that, but we are talking about healthcare today. No problem. Because I know that you are going to be chairing the BC Rural Health Alliance. What is this? This is basically a, a group that was formed uh, uh, last year by Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater, and Barbara Roden Ashcroft, and I do believe another community. And it's to address the situation of the hospital closures on a regular basis. Uh, Here in Merritt, we've been closed three times in the last month, I think five times since Christmas. And we're not alone. Other communities are experiencing the same thing. So this alliance was formed uh, a year ago to try and get some answers. And I do believe that both mayors did get some uh, some, uh, face time with the minister and some things were dealt with. when we got closed down for the third time, uh, I went to Mayor Blackwell uh, and asked him if we could revive this group. And he said, no problem, let's do it. And uh, he sent out an email and we've uh, banded together. And in a very short amount of time, we have had mayors jump on from the Kootenays all the way down to the North Islands. And uh, in a, two days, we've been at this two and a half, two and a half days. We haven't even really met as a group yet. We're just reforming. We're in baby steps but it goes to show you the concern that uh, the interior mayors have for what's going on. And, uh, you know, when I was campaigning, one of the things that I said is that uh, a small community or a small city like ours, uh, you know, uh, going up against the ministry by itself probably isn't going to do very well. But when you get a concerted group that form together and move as one and act as one, then, you know, notice has to be taken and, um, you know, you have to be dealt with, I guess. Do you think the problem has gotten worse? As you were saying, though, you've had no problem with mayors saying, yes, sign me up, sign me up. So does that tell you how widespread this is? Yes, it is. Uh, the, the, again, here, you know, it, it, again, I'm not going to lay this to completely at the feet of the ministry 
or anything like that. I mean, there's probably some other issues that need to be looked at. Is this a staffing issue? Is this an issue where uh, there's uh, people who don't want to take certain shifts? Uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So answers, you know, it, it, you can you can relay bad news to people if you give them the correct answer and let them know what's going on. But when you have no answers other than the fact that, hey, we're not going to be open until Monday morning, that's a concern for a community. We have a community here that is a blue-collar community. People are working. We recreate. If you get injured here in those two days that we're down, you're making a one-hour ride to Kamloops to be seen. Now, let's say you cut your finger off or you have a stroke. Stroke is the golden hour. You're going to be spending that hour driving to Kamloops to be looked at. It's a concern. Um, you know, I don't get a phone call from the fire chief telling me, hey, you know what, uh, it's Friday night, but we won't be putting out any fires till Monday morning. I don't get that kind of a phone call. So we've got to find out what's not working in the healthcare system and uh, find out what we can do as this group to help the uh, ministry come to a solution and work together. That's that's the way I see this group working. How forthcoming is your health authority, right? Because you think about staffing and scheduling and those are health authority issues. What have you heard from them? Nothing at this point. I mean, again, we've just we've just started this. Um, I did have a meeting yesterday uh, with the uh, uh, IH mayors and the RHD chair for uh, interior health. And a couple of questions that were asked during this conversation, there was about 60 of us on a phone call, uh, was why don't we relax the uh, unvaccinated nurses and allow them to come back to work? Why aren't we allowing physician assistance? There is some uh, resolve out there. But there has to be the intestinal fortitude to move forward on it and, and, and make some changes. I understand the whole thing about COVID and everything, but we're at a point now where maybe it's time that we allowed the unvaccinated nurses to return to work. Um, there's there's a, a pretty good workforce right there. So these are the things that this group will tackle and talk about. And uh, uh, IHA, we will work with them. What answers we get from them is what answers we get from them. But ultimately, uh, Simi, we are going to be targeting the minister to uh, take our concerns to the minister and have some meaningful dialogue with him. Um, I'm not one of these guys that believes that you you step up a ladder, you step up a ladder. If you can go to the top right away, just go. Okay, so then what are the next steps here? You said you're kind of, you haven't fully met yet, so what is the plan? Well, yesterday I reached out to the mayor of Elkford, who you know is having a problem. They haven't had an emergency room working for almost a year and a half. So he is on board. Mayor Fairburn is on board. Uh, The uh, mayor, Everett Baker, from Grand Forks is the co-chair. Today I'll be working with some of my staff to set, uh, uh, we're going to have to do a virtual meeting and get some of the uh, particulars of what we're looking for. And of course, uh, Mayor uh, Blackwell will uh, kind of guide us along uh, on on what he did and where we should go. And then we'll work from there and work towards something that makes sense and then uh, make a presentation and um, just continue to ask questions and let them know that we're there. What are you hearing from members of the community here, Mayor Getz? Like, how has it impacted people? You know, it's funny, Simi, when the call comes out, like myself, I immediately say to my family, and it's silly, like, don't do anything stupid for the next two days. Don't cut yourself, don't. And that's right through the community. Um, We have a lot of seniors here that depend on our hospital. Um, And when that message comes down, it, it... your community changes for the next two days and you're, you're very careful what you do. And the concern for me that I have is the fact that we're at the confluence of three highways, the Coquihalla, we're the hub. We have over 80,000 vehicles that come through here every single day. And we have a lot of accidents on this highway. The uh, bus crash was a prime example of why 
we need some answers because we're not we were not able to treat most of those people they had to on those those slippery terrible roads now get in an ambulance and go back to Kelowna Vernon and Penticton and we were only able to uh, to work on the walking wounded so there has to be uh, some look at communities that need more help uh, especially like Merritt because we have so many people coming through here and if you have a big accident on the weekend or the time when the uh, hospital is closed you know now you're rushing everybody to another community um, most likely in the middle of the night. That's a good point, though. You're right, right there at the end of the Coquihalla, and if some, and accidents happen on the Coquihalla all the time, don't they? It's constant, uh, and, and it is a constant. Uh, you can't have that many vehicles roll through without somebody either, you know, glancing at their phone or some other thing, a tire blows out or whatever, and that's happened. Uh, and the next thing you know, they're on their lid and somebody is hurt, and all of a sudden the closest hospital to them, which is Merritt, uh, isn't open, and it's a concern for us. Well, you know what? Keep us posted on how this goes. I know we'll be following along on it. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you very much for uh, having me, and uh, good morning to your listeners. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, living here on the South Coast, we all know that an earthquake could happen. In fact, experts tell us we're probably overdue for one, actually. But here's the thing. Technology has also come a long way, and work is well underway to try to help us predict when an earthquake could happen. Like, not a long lead-up to an earthquake, but, you know, even if it's a minute or two away, even if it's seconds away, it could make a big difference in saving lives. Joining us now to talk more about that is Alison Bird, seismologist and liaison and outreach officer for Natural Resources Canada. Alison, thank you for being here. You're welcome. And what, tell me about this new earthquake early warning system. Well, it's not quite a prediction system. We're not telling you an earthquake will happen in the future. We're telling you an earthquake has just been detected and um, the strong shaking is imminent. So take protective actions. That's the idea that, you know, you'll, you use those few seconds to do that drop covered hold that we practice every October during shakeout. Um, and then automated systems can trigger actions like opening doors, closing valves, uh, sounding alarms, that sort of thing. Okay, so how much of uh, an imminent warning would that be? Well, it depends. Um, it depends mostly on how far you are from the earthquake. If you're extremely close to the earthquake, unfortunately, you might be within a late alert zone where it's just not possible to alert you in time. But um, the closer you are, the less time. Uh, so you can be from a few seconds to tens of seconds. You might even for major earthquakes like the Cascadia subduction zone, where the rupture might start quite far away, you might even have a few minutes. And the Cascadia subduction, is that the one that we always fear could bring us the big one? Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what everyone talks about as being the big one. The last one happened um, in 1700, actually January 26th, so we're coming up on the anniversary this week. Um, and um, it was a major event. It was about a magnitude 9 earthquake, so it'd be a few minutes of shaking, uh, very violent shaking if you're close to it. And then, of course, this is the kind of earthquake that causes a tsunami. And that tsunami um, devastated uh, coastal communities along the west coast of Vancouver Island and other areas. It even impacted Japan. Okay, so if something like that were to happen, uh, what what kind of systems would we put into place? Like what would need to shut down? What, what would the system help? Well, the, the system actually just gives you the warning. What you do with that warning... Um, dictates how safe you're going to be from that earthquake. So um, that's why we try to encourage people to, to practice that drop cover and hold on so that they're creating that muscle memory and their body takes them to that safe space during an earthquake. 
Uh, we're talking to various critical infrastructure operators so that they are aware that this system will be coming online next year and they can get those automated response technologies in place. Um, there are companies that do that for, say, elevators, moving the elevators to the nearest floor and opening the doors so that people don't get trapped and that sort of thing. So um, we can send out the alert, but really it, it it's depending on what you and your facilities do um, to how much we reduce the impact of that earthquake. That's a big, that could make a big difference, couldn't it, though? Just having a few, even if you have 30 seconds warning to do that, like bring the elevators back and, and reroute planes and just so that everybody knows, stop surgeries in a hospital. Exactly. In fact, that's how it started in, um, in Japan. They started with stopping trains and also halting surgery in, in hospitals. And that it immediately made a big difference. In fact, they had an earthquake just um, late last year where um, there was uh, an alert sent out Trains were stopped, and it really saved lives because um, there were tracks that were damaged in that in that earthquake. Yeah, so these are the, seems like the simple things that we're focusing on here. So, mm-hmm. how will this system work then? When will it get rolled out? Well, um, we're installing the sensors. We installed um, our hundredth one just a couple of weeks ago. Um, there will be a total of um, just over three hundred at least um, when it's finished. Uh, so we have them all along the west coast of, Van- of, of British Columbia because, of course, this is the most seismically active region in the country, but also um, the Ottawa River Valley and the St. Lawrence Seaway. That's another area of seismicity that people don't realize um, happens in Canada. Um, And this will be um, rolled out in in 2024. We're using the same um, software that's used in the United States. This helps facilitate the sharing of data across that border because they have the system operating in Washington State, uh, Oregon, and California. And um, yeah, it's really exciting. Do we take it seriously enough? Do you think, Alison, like you talked about the great shakeout. Yeah, we go through it every year, but you think, are people still listening? Are they paying attention? I think it's it's slowly improving. I think people are starting to realize, yes, we are living in earthquake country. It's a little difficult because we haven't really had a major earthquake in the the southwest corner of the province for decades. And so we've lost that sort of collective memory of, of those major events. But they have happened quite frequently in the past. In fact, there were several earthquakes in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and, and unfortunately, people have been lulled into that false sense of security. But I think we're building up that knowledge, um, that culture of awareness in BC. And um, I'm really hopeful that, um, you know, when these, the, these systems roll out, that people will become aware. And, and when national public alerting system alerts go to their phones and uh, TVs and radios and all that, that they, they heed those warnings and they act responsibly. What do we classify as a major earthquake? Well, um, we, we start alerting. It depends not just on the size of the earthquake, but the kind of shaking it will produce. Because if it's big but far away, it's not going to produce much. So um, there are a whole bunch of calculations that have to go into play, which is why this, this technology is tricky, because you have to be really fast to detect and calculate and then alert. Uh, so... Um, it, usually magnitude 5 is where you start to have damage if, you, if it's close to a populated center. So that's fairly close to where we're going to start alerting. But um, we might alert even for lower than that just to, so people are aware, you know, there's going to be shaking, you know, and, and, and to, to do that drop cover, hold on, just in case. Right. So if you're a facilities person, if you work in any kind of building or you're a boss, this is the kind of thing you need to pay attention to because this could make a difference. Yes, certainly. Um, we're, we're certainly uh, hoping that people um, will, uh, you know, we get, we're, we're producing some materials online for those 
sorts of critical infrastructure operators and other facilities that might want to learn more about the system. And um, we're going to be holding some some workshops with people so that they can understand how the system works and how they might use our, our alerts. All right. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Allison. You're welcome. Anytime. That's Allison Bird, seismologist and outreach officer for Natural Resources Canada. They're promoting this early warning system for earthquakes and they're bringing it online in 2024. The system's going to go live and it will provide a warning for critical infrastructure depending on you know where the earthquake is, as Allison mentioned there. But it could do things like trigger safety measures for stopping surgeries in hospitals or opening ambulance doors in hospitals or rerouting planes from landing if an earthquake is imminent. Like those things will make a difference. Even if it gives you 30 seconds notice, that's a big deal, right? We need to pay more attention to that earthquake safety for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Last couple of weeks, we have been talking about artificial intelligence or AI and the different impacts that that is having and all sorts of things to the person that you think you're talking to when you ask a question online, uh, to helping you write your paper, actually, if you're handing it in for a class, if you're in a post-secondary institution, there's all sorts of applications for this. And so those are the ethical questions around it. But the actual industry itself is doing really well, particularly here in Canada. And so there are questions about what the federal government's strategy is around artificial intelligence and the work that goes into it. So joining us now, who has been writing about this extensively, is Sean Silkoff, Globe and Mail Technology Reporter. Sean, thanks for being here this morning. Thank you. Good to good to talk to you. Well, how big is the AI sector in Canada? Well, uh, there's a, a number of different uh, estimates. Uh, I don't know how many of them I actually believe, but we're talking about um, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of employees. Certainly, you've got um, some big concentrations in uh, centres like uh, Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, of course, and uh, and Edmonton. Some of the most uh, interesting up-and-coming technology companies in Canada are AI-based, including a company called uh, Coveo. Uh, One of the hottest companies uh, I cover is a company in Toronto called uh, Cohere, which is kind of in the same space as uh, ChatGPT, which uh, everyone's uh, been trying out the last uh, month or so. So uh, this is a teaming sector, and and AI really touches a whole bunch of areas, uh, including including driverless vehicles, which is another huge thing we're going to be hearing a lot about in the coming years. That chat GPT is what got us kind of started on this road last week talking about this because it is so fascinating. What makes Canada a place for this artificial intelligence industry to grow? Well, it's really interesting. You know, AI was a big promise of science and technology going back many, many decades. And then it didn't kind of deliver on the promises everyone was expecting. I'm talking like back in the 50s and 60s. So by about the 80s and 90s, uh, it was a sector that was going through kind of like a winter. And around that time, you had these three experts who um, were were all sort of experts in their field. They were all working in the U.S. One is uh, an American named Rich Sutton. One was a, a Brit named uh, Jeffrey Hinton, and one was a uh, um, son of immigrants who grew up in Canada named Joshua Bengio. They all decided they didn't really want to be in America anymore, and so they came up to Canada and sort of quietly set up shop. And before you knew it, by the 2010s, thanks to the three of them and grad students that followed, there was a nice teeming ecosystem in Canada of artificial intelligence experts. And as it turns out, the areas that they were working on became the areas that the tech giants were extremely interested in, things that were, you know, 
helping to uh, helping to fuel new technologies like um, uh, like helping you to select songs or autonomous vehicles. Uh, some of the big uh, some of the big uses of tech we've seen. So suddenly the tech giants began moving in like crazy and hiring all these uh, people. They're grad students buying startup companies. And so by 2017, the federal government uh, came out with a strategy to try and keep some of that talent here. And that's one of the things we wrote about in our big series on innovation this uh, the past few days. Yeah, that series has been amazing to read through. So what is the federal government doing then? Do they recognize that, okay, we want to boost this sector? Well, you know, their first strategy was really a talent retention strategy. There was this fear that there would be this giant sucking sound and all the big brains in Canada would end up uh, leaving for opportunities in America. So the government put $125 million uh, in to keep them here. Well, what happened was a lot of AI labs actually opened up here. Uh, Google was opening up labs, Facebook, uh, so on and so forth. So the talent didn't actually have to leave. It could stay here. But suddenly it was kind of looking like um, a branch plant strategy because uh, we, we feature some data in our story that shows that of all the patents that a lot of these researchers funded by the AI strategy stay here, uh, the patents that they produce, 75% of them are now owned by foreign companies. So there's some questions about whether the money was well spent. Well, the government came out with another strategy uh, two years ago. They This time they committed $440 million. Well, now the critics uh, that we interviewed are saying, well, boy, that's uh, that's that's a drop in the bucket. It's not enough. It's still too focused on keeping the talent here and not enough on harnessing the giant economic potential of AI and what we are producing. So it, this is one of the many issues that we explore about the government's technology and innovation policy over the last seven years. Uh, definitely worth reading. Uh, there's a lot of critics uh, and food for thought about what the government has been doing, what they haven't been doing right, and what they could be doing. And we're certainly going to have more coverage of this in the coming months to look at this important issue. Uh, what this boils down to is innovation is something that helps the economy grow, and our economy has been growing slower than just about every other advanced economy in the world for decades. Okay, even though they're doing that, they recognize that this is an important sector, they want to help this sector, so Canada is not necessarily seeing, though, the economic benefits of that? Not not as much due to government policy as uh, as many observers would like. I mean, certainly we have an industry here, um, we, we have players, we have talent, but it seems like the government could be doing more uh, a more effective job with uh, with policies than it has to date, and and that's that's kind of the key focus of our series is is delving into that. Now you've done such a the series has been amazing to read through. What are the next steps for you? What do you think you still need to do some more looking into? Well, I, we keep hearing this time and again that uh, the focus on government should be scale ups. How do we turn domestically domestic companies that are based here? into giants, into anchors. One big anchor company makes a huge impact on the global economy. And we still have an innovation department in the government that's chasing around, trying to bring electric vehicle plants here that are foreign owned. Uh, that's, that's great for creating jobs, but it doesn't, create, um, it doesn't create the same kind of wealth effect as if you have a homegrown company here. And you hear this no matter who you talk to. We need more Shopify's. We need more homegrown success stories. And uh, we probably need a more focused um, and coordinated approach from Ottawa. All these different departments running around, showering money on programs like super clusters and all these different strategies, 
to work together and more effectively and maybe listen to industry a little bit more is, is definitely some of the messages we, we've gotten we've reported on. Well, I look forward to reading more about it. Sean, thank you. Thank you. Nice to speak with you. That's Sean Silkoff, a Globe and Mail technology reporter. He has been working on a series of stories about artificial intelligence and the industry here in Canada. It has, we have a well-regarded AI sector. Um, it's it's well-staffed. There's a lot of original thinkers here who are doing important work on it. But Canada itself is not reaping the kind of economic benefits that perhaps other countries are from having a thriving sector like that. So they're asking, why is that? So great series of stories. You should check it out at globeandmail.com. And of course, we will be continuing our conversation on AI too. It's learning so much as we've been doing this. This is Mornings with Simi. Sure, everyone is upset that those new health guidelines say we shouldn't have more than two alcoholic beverages a week. Some of you out there are probably thinking about your alcohol consumption when you heard that news. But here's the thing. A lot of younger people out there are already on this bandwagon. And it's why you are seeing such a big increase in the popularity of non-alcoholic beverages. Just take a look at the beverage aisle at your grocery store. When I see mine, it is filled with non-alcoholic craft beer. Different brands being added all the time. Now, are restaurants seeing this too? Is there demand out there for more creativity when it comes to non-alcoholic beverages? Well, we decided to ask someone who would know. Jeff Quinar joins us now, Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. So what are you seeing out there? Are restaurants saying that there are more customers who want non-alcoholic options? Yeah, absolutely. The shift started happening a few years ago, and it's really accelerated kind of coming out of the pandemic where people's general alcohol consumption went up. But what we really noticed is there's uh, you know, there's cocktail bars in Vancouver that have an entire page of the menu dedicated to low alcohol and no alcohol uh, cocktails that they've created. Uh, you go to trade shows, industry trade shows, where there's a whole bunch of manufacturers sampling the new products, everything from breweries to wineries. Uh, are producing non-alcoholic beverages now and, and cocktails and cans, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting change in concern behavior, and it's quite exciting for industry. That's so, so even bartenders then have to be creative, right? Because I guess that is the rise of the mocktail. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It makes their jobs interesting. Um, one of the things we're finding, though, is there's, there's certain products that you can definitely sub in quite simply. Like the, the beer industry has made tremendous strides in having delicious stouts and IPAs and lagers. Uh, some of the, the wines, uh, particularly the still ones, they end up kind of missing some of the mid-palate, so consumers don't enjoy them quite as much. But some of the sparklings are absolutely delicious. And a whole bunch of cocktails are out there with sort of you know, de-alcoholized or non-alcoholic you know, spirit bases are in there that are a lot of fun to play with. And we have a whole bunch of cocktails, yeah, cocktail bars in the city that, as I say, have an entire menu dedicated to them. So it's, it's exciting for us. Uh, and it comes at a good time, right? I mean, I think what you're seeing is on the heels of the, the Canadian Centre and Substance Use and Addiction putting out their study this week, you know, indicating that people should rethink their, their consumption. We're finding a lot of Canadians have already sort of gone down that path and are looking at the relative risk of what they're consuming uh, and taking the context of what their diet is, right? And people are just a bit more health conscious than they were you know, 10 years ago. Oh, interesting. So would you say that have bars noticed that difference in alcohol consumption? You talked about we were drinking more during the pandemic. Has anything changed now that we're kind of out of the pandemic? Yeah. So in, in general, during the pandemic, overall consumption stats went up, right? I think everybody was sitting at home and, uh, and, and they just started drinking more. We've seen since then across the board from hospitality 
uh, right through to, to liquor store sales. They have declined and they're back down to sort of what they were around pre-pandemic levels. So it looks like a decline, but it's just kind of returned to what the normal was. And now we're seeing a segment of the consumers are switching and buying non-alcoholic or de-alcoholic beverages at a higher rate. So who knows where this is going to go in the long term, but everything looks like general alcohol consumption is going down out there. And I, I think it generally has to do with uh, just educating folks about the risk. Right? One of the, the useful things about the study that came out is it's obviously encouraging responsible and educated consumption is good for society. And it, it's also good for the long-term sustainability of the liquor and hospitality industries as customers make more educated choices. I don't think anybody's surprised to find out that binge drinking or consuming while you're pregnant is bad for you. Uh, but it's all about just educating folks to make sure they can make the right decisions. Yeah, that's true. It, it does. Um, it's good for restaurants, I would imagine, and bars to have those choices there. Do you think there's an age um, factor here in terms of mm-hmm. people and what they're looking for? Yeah, for sure. What we found also is younger consumers, and you know, it's a broad category for us, from anybody from people drinking age up to kind of their early 30s, we've noticed that they're the ones who are less prone to indulge in binge drinking. Now, there's certainly always a, a segment of customers that you know we're, we're watching out to ensure they're consuming responsibly, but we're finding a bit less in that. And no one really quite knows why. It's a combination probably of this is the first generation to exist with legal cannabis uh, as an option. And we find those tend to be substitutes. People generally consume one or the other. They're not coming in and consuming both on a general basis, although certain consumers do, but I'm just speaking generally. We've also noticed that uh, you know, younger folks have just had more education about relative risk and responsible health choices, right? So they're you know, they're, they're eating better, um, they're exercising more, and they're just less interested in consuming large quantities of alcohol. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's an interesting shift in the consumer market, and that's why a lot of beverage companies and major producers are just listening to what their consumers are telling them and adjusting their, their products accordingly. This is so fascinating. I'm, I've been a non-drinker, you know, my whole life pretty much. Uh, and so all of a sudden seeing all these new products, I'm like, this is great. I have more options. <laughs> I have more options out there. Um, what it about dry, fun. what's that? It is very fun. But just yeah. when you look at, you know, even cocktails and cans now, right? So you yeah. can have, if you're going on a hike and you know, some people do this, they'll grab a beer for when they get to the peak or something like that. But you can actually get a non uh, or de-alcoholized uh, beverage to do the same thing. So cool. Okay, what about dry January? Now, do do bars and restaurants notice an impact of dry January? Oh, it's very individual. Uh, there's no sort of across-the-border trend uh, on, on our impact on sales. You just find it, you know, you, you might miss some of your customers for a month or two as they're, as they're taking <laughs> some time off. And then but, they're back. <laughs> uh, yeah, generally, they, they come back afterwards. Right? But it's that's one of those things, too, that like that's not something, um, you know, people would have done uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? I mean, there's this is a product of the education that has gone on uh, to let people know about just you know, how to consume responsibly. You know, it's um, it's interesting when people come in and they'll um, some folks will also take February off. And there's different challenges that go on, right? And uh, so we just notice the customer should shift the behavior a bit, but overall, it doesn't have a large impact on, on consumption or sales. You just know sooner or later they're going to be back, right? Well, like we'll see you in a month or so. <laughs> generally, that's what happens, right? And sometimes not, but generally, that's what we experience. Yes. It also just tells me, I guess, Jeff, how hard it is for any bar owner these days to kind of stay on top of these things because you have to make sure you know what the customer is looking for. Yeah, and it, it's more complicated now than it has ever been to run a successful hospitality business. And I, you know, this is one of the many examples. You're also, at the same time as this study comes out and recommends that people you know, reconsider their, their consumption choices, and at the end of this month, British Columbia is also decriminalizing certain kind of harder drugs, things like 
opioids, crack and powder cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA. Uh, what that means is you could be in a licensed establishment with, you know, two and a half grams of cocaine in your pocket, but you're you know, also getting public health advice telling you to only have two drinks per week, right? So it's, yeah. it's confusing for a licensee. You're like, so we're supposed to let them stop consuming alcohol, and but they're allowed to consume, you know, harder drugs here, right? So it's, it, you're always trying to watch out for what's happening and to try and manage the risk in your establishment because our responsibility is to service you the best we can while also keeping you safe. Good point. All right, Jeff, thank you. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. We're talking about the increase in demand, really, for non-alcoholic or de-alcoholized beverages. Something he said that, yes, a lot of restaurants and bars out there are responding to because they have to. And, you know, this all prompted by the discussion that started last week with the new health guidelines that came out. These are just guidelines, right? They're not telling you you must do this. These are suggestions that two drinks a week is enough unless you want it to impact your health. They said two drinks a week should be sufficient. And I wonder, because they've generated so much discussion out there, has anybody, have you, have you thought twice about your alcohol consumption as a result of what's been in the news last week? Or do you just go, nah, I'm not changing anything. People recommend different stuff all the time. I'd be really curious to hear about that. Maybe you're thinking, well, I could probably cut down a little bit, cut down a couple of drinks per week.